Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is Friday, December 6th, 2019. It was 11 years ago this coming Sunday that I did my first internet radio program back on December 8th? No, 11 years ago this Sunday that I got home, and on the 13th, next Saturday, will be the 11th anniversary of doing internet radio. Christagenia is nearly 11 years old now. Last year, I didn't really celebrate any 10th anniversaries because we had the hurricane and way too many things going on to even think about it. But it doesn't seem like I've been doing this 11 years. It seems more like two years or three or maybe even 11 months. The time has gone by so fast. This evening, I am going to present part 38 of my commentary on the Gospel of John, and it is titled Genesis Synthesis. This program, a commentary on John chapter 15 is titled Genesis Synthesis because the Bible is the same book and the plan of Yahweh our God has never changed from beginning to end. Doing this, I am going to repeat some of the concepts which we have presented over our last few presentations. But here in John chapter 15, Christ also repeats certain concepts on several occasions, from John chapters 14 through 16, so I won't feel too terribly about it. In our last two presentations of this commentary on the Gospel of John, which were titled The Way and The True Vine and the Tree of Life, we have made the assertion that Yahshua Christ is the Tree of Life and that the tree itself also represents the race of Adam, which Yahweh had created, as the creation is described in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Here we will continue to make those assertions, and offer further proof of their veracity as we proceed through John chapter 15. We also help to elucidate the synthesis of the Gospel of Christ, with the fall of Adam in the Genesis account as the overall plan of Yahweh God for the Adamic man which he had initially created is indeed revealed in the Gospel. As we may read in the Wisdom of Solomon in chapter 2, God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. We cannot imagine that God would fail. Now, as it is recorded here in John chapters 15 through 17, Yahshua is speaking to his disciples after departing from the house where they had shared their famous so-called Last Supper. And it would be only a few hours longer before he is arrested and subsequently executed. We would assert that in these chapters, where John had recorded some of the 
final words of Christ to his apostles, there is profound significance as we see a synthesis between the gospel and purpose of Christ in the redemption of the Adamic race and the failure of purpose by which the Adamic race had come to need that redemption in the first place, as it is described in Genesis, which was written by Moses over 1,500 years before the gospel was announced. Christ had said in the opening verses of John chapter 15, that I am the true vine, and my Father is the planter. Each branch in me not bearing fruit, he takes it, and each bearing fruit, he cleanses it, in order that it would bear more fruit. We had actually presented the first six verses of this chapter with our last segment in this commentary. And there we saw that that cleanse, that Cleanse may also be translated as prune in relation to agriculture. And each bearing fruit, he prunes it in order that it would bear more fruit. Yahweh did indeed plant the vine. And Christ is declared to be both a root and a branch of the race of Adam. In the words of the prophet Isaiah and in the Revelation. So where he had earlier said in John chapter 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life, calling himself the true vine here, we see that he certainly must be the tree of life, which the Adamic man was told that he must take hold of if he is to eat and live forever. For that same reason, Christ had earlier described himself as the bread of life in John chapter 6. Yahweh planted the tree of life in the midst of the garden when he created the Adamic race. And the first Adam was given a commission to tend that garden, which we see as an allegory for the cultivation of a society. That is the same way that Christ describes God as pruning branches on the vine in his discourse here. But where the first Adam had sinned, he failed in that commission. And Yahshua Christ, whom Paul of Tarsus had described as the last Adam, also being God incarnate, would ultimately tend the garden for himself. Elsewhere, in his epistle to the Hebrews, Christ is described as both a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in fulfillment of a prophecy of David found in the Psalms and as a son over his own house, ostensibly because all things being created on his account and he being Yahweh God incarnate. Although he was not born for over 5,000 years after Adam, he can nevertheless assert that he is both the root and the branch of the tree, both a son and the originator of the household. 
As we had also explained, understanding the symbol of the cherubim helps us to establish the veracity of this interpretation of the tree of life and the way which they had kept, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, the way which they had kept the tree of life, the path to the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that they were placed at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. We would assert that the cherubim were placed at the east end of the garden because, metaphorically speaking, that is where the sun rises, as it is written in Malachi chapter 4. But unto you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And Christ says of himself in Revelation chapter 22, that I am the root and the offspring, the root and the branch of David and the bright and morning star. So he is the tree of life and he is the Son which would rise to heal his people. Of course, the wordplay with the sound-alike word son and son is only effective in English and perhaps also in German. They're not as similar in most other Germanic languages even. A lot of the Germanic languages have adopted the Latin word sal, for sun. The purpose of the cherubim was to keep the way of the tree of life, and they are found next atop the Ark of the Covenant in which the tablets of the law were kept, on each side of the judgment seat of Yahweh. Here we should know that the cherubim were placed as symbols to make certain that man would be preserved, that he would be able to find the way to the tree of life, because the law the keeping of which is the path, was indeed kept, and therefore man would be able to see both the path and the objective, which is Christ. The law and word of God would cleanse the Adamic man of his sins, as here in John chapter 15, Christ had next told his disciples that you are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. In the subsequent verses, he also explained to them that they would be clean so long as they abode in his word. But what he said to them immediately following that statement also helps to establish our assertion that they, being of the race of Adam, were also of the tree of life, where he told them, you abide in me and I in you just as the branch is not able to bear fruit by itself unless it should abide on the vine. Thusly, neither do you unless you would abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who is abiding in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are not able to do anything. When the children of Israel continue in sin, they continue to suffer in punishment. So Christ had also warned them 
in verse 6 of this chapter. If one should not abide in me, he shall be cast outside like a branch that has withered. And they gather and they cast them into the lake, into the fire, I'm sorry, into the fire, and it burns. When the first Adam sinned, he was cast outside, out of the garden. And it was foretold that he would suffer, where Yahweh had said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return under the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So it is evident that while Adam was promised a way to return, he was nevertheless like a branch broken off from the tree. Later, Paul of Tarsus would use this same analogy of the Romans in chapter 11 of that epistle where he told them that as wild olives, they were being grafted back into the cultivated olive tree in Christ. The Romans were indeed of the ancient dispersions of the children of Israel, as they had the truth of God, a truth which was only given to the children of Israel. So Paul admonished them in Romans chapter 1, because they had changed the truth of God into a lie, and that for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. Speaking of the rampant debauchery of ancient Rome. Then Paul, comparing them to the disbelieving Israelites among the Judeans, said that they would be as branches broken off for as long as they remained apostate from Christ. Adam had been given only one specific commandment, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And breaking that commandment, he fell from the grace of God. The thorns and briars we see as allegories for people because the Canaanites were later called thorns in the sides of the children of Israel. It is later described in Genesis chapter 6 that Adam's descendants also sinned and were punished as they were race-mixing with the ostensibly fallen angels. They must have broken the same law that Adam had broken because they were punished severely. And according to scripture, sin is transgression of the law and sin is not imputed where there is no law. But when they sinned, there was still one law. The same law concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil found in Genesis chapter 2, which was given to their first father, Adam. So in their punishment, we can determine what they had been punished for, which is fornication. To remain in the good graces of God, men must keep the word of God, which includes his law. And in that manner, Christ continues as we proceed with John chapter 15. 
if you abide in me and my word should abide in you, verse 7, whatever you should desire, you may ask and it shall come to you. This verse brings out the lustful Joel Osteen types, even in Christian identity. Sadly, many Christians, and even some so-called identity Christians, read this statement and lift one portion out of its context, where it says, whatever you should desire, you may ask, and it shall come to you. And then they imagine that whatever they desire, for whatever reason, Yahweh must give it to them simply because they believe in Jesus. This is the essence of what is often called prosperity gospel, which is preached by charlatans who feed themselves by feeding the lustful desires of others with lies and deceit. But it is simply not true. Here Christ is speaking to his disciples, and he is encouraging them in relation to the commission which he is giving to them. So he further states in verse 8, that in this my Father is honored, that you would bear much fruit, and you would be my students. Just as Adam was given charge to tend a garden, now, the apostles would be charged with reattaching broken branches to the vine by the gospel of Christ. The apostles of Christ would have whatever they may need that they would be able to bear much fruit, bringing the gospel to the people. This becomes evident as the dialogue progresses, and he says, I have chosen you and I have ordained you in order that you should go and bear fruit. And then he spoke of their impending persecution. Later, at the end of this chapter, he tells them that the advocate, which is the Holy Spirit or Spirit of Truth, would testify concerning him. And he says, but you also shall testify because you are with me from the beginning. They who were with him from the beginning would be his apostles to bring the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the context in which he says, whatever you should desire, you may ask and it shall come to you that they may have whatever they need to fulfill the mission for which he had chosen them. Christians cannot imagine that the words apply in any other context which is of their own choosing. The apostles would become the heralds of the Melchizedek priesthood, an office now held by Yahshua Christ alone. Melchizedek, meaning king of righteousness. The nature of the office is partly revealed in Peter's statement in chapter 2 of his second epistle, where the Greek reads that Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness. All of the mainstream denominational translations really screw up that translation because they can't imagine how 
it plainly, it is plainly and literally true, where it says that Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness. Noah, being the tenth generation from Adam, was the eighth of those patriarchs who had outlived their fathers. So, two generations of men before him, which are Enoch and Lamech, did not hold the position of patriarch or elder of the race. But once Yahweh became incarnate as Joshua Christ, he is the true patriarch of the race, and he alone can naturally assume the Melchizedek priesthood, which had evidently been left idle since the time of Abraham in Genesis. As John had written in his first epistle, the whole world lieth in wickedness, or in our translation, the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. Paul also spoke in this manner, where he said in Acts chapter 14, that God had in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. In Joshua chapter 24, we learn that even Abraham's fathers had taken to idolatry. Where Joshua appealed to the people, and he said, Now therefore fear Yahweh, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, a reference to the Euphrates River, and in Egypt, and serve ye Yahweh. So it seems that sometime after Noah, the children of Adam had deserted the Melchizedek priesthood so that it became abandoned. And Abraham was called out of the corrupt world of that day. Perhaps with that understanding of antiquity, we may see by how narrow a path it was that the way to the tree of life had been preserved. Now, once again, we may discern that the keeping of the law is the path of the tree of life, which is what was represented by the cherubim placed atop the Ark of the Covenant. Christ says, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. You abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Just as I have kept the commandments of my Father, and I abide in his love. Yahshua Christ, being without sin, set the example of one who would abide in the love of the Father. No man, Christ being the tree of life, no man can grasp him without also keeping his commandments. But the instructions here are not new. In the Exodus, 
when the law was given at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel had consented to follow the law. And that was the basis of the Old Covenant and their abiding in the love of the Father. We read in Exodus chapter 19, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, he says to Moses, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. From there, Yahweh proceeded to lay down the law, beginning with the commandments, which are given in Exodus chapter 20. The entire Levitical covenant was predicated upon the statement, if you will obey my voice indeed. And when the people failed, Yahweh put them out of his garden once again. Speaking of the sins of the people, Yahweh had said in Jeremiah chapter 11, Yahweh called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. The results of their sin was that punishment. They were taken into captivity. For Yahweh of hosts that planted thee has pronounced evil against thee for the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense unto Baal. Here, where he declares himself to be the true vine and his disciples the branches. Christ is only reiterating the lessons of the Old Testament as it is the will of God to bring the children of Israel into obedience. Where I make the assertion that the law was kept and that the path, that was the path which the cherubim had preserved. I do not mean to imply that the people had kept the law. There's a difference there between the statement, the law was kept, and the people had kept the law. Rather, the law was kept in the sense that the scriptures were maintained down through the centuries so that men could read and choose to keep them. The children of Israel were punished for not keeping the law. They never kept it. If the scriptures were not maintained, we would never understand the significance of a Christ, and we would not have the knowledge of the commandments in order to know the way to life. If the scriptures were not maintained, we would be ignorant of our own origin and destiny. And as Paul had written in Ephesians chapter 2, we would remain apart from Christ having been alienated from the civic life of Israel, and strangers of the covenants of the promise, not having hope, and in the society without Yahweh. All of the children of Adam had already long gone off into idolatry. 
which Paul had described in Colossians chapter 2 as the worshiping of angels, ostensibly the worship of fallen angels, as the ancient Mesopotamian inscriptions also reveal. Then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul also called it the worshiping of devils, as the fallen angels were described as devils in the Revelation. So he himself made the connection which we present here. Then, because the children of Israel were disobedient, and they all took to worshiping the idols of the other nations, they engaged in fornication, which is race-mixing. Thus we read in Jeremiah chapter 2, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou said, I will not transgress. That, of course, is a description of the freeing of the children of Israel from the captivity in Egypt and their agreement that they would keep the Old Testament laws. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot, yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, Yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. In relation to that same thing, speaking of the spirit of whoredoms among the children of Israel, we read more explicitly in Hosea chapter 5 that doing so, by doing so, they have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children grasping the tree of life, it may be evident, because Adam and Eve, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived and had been seduced by the serpent, the representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because Adam followed her in his sin, the remedy is to reach out and grasp the tree of life, his own tree, to stay with his own race, kind after kind. And by that, Adam would eventually be saved. So for that same reason, Paul of Tarsus encouraged the Corinthians in chapter 6 of his first epistle to them to flee fornication Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. By committing fornication, the body one defiles is the body of Christ, as Paul, speaking of the children of Israel who were being called back to Christ, wrote in 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread.
Earlier in that chapter, he encouraged them not to commit fornication, as their Israelite ancestors had done, for which Yahweh had punished them. Then a little later, he says, Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? But I say that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. So the devils to which he refers must be those same Canaanites and other mixed and non-Adamic races that had also plagued the ancient Israelites. Now Christ speaks of joy, because man should rejoice that he can be reconciled with God. These things I have spoken to you in order that my joy would be in you and your joy would be fulfilled. In a messianic prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 29, we read, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in Yahweh, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Likewise, in another messianic prophecy, one which Christ had cited in reference to himself, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, we read of the redemption of Israel in Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of Yahweh God is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison, the captives of Israel, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh, and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, meaning only Israelites, to give unto them beauty for ashes, because they were in captivity, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. God is glorified in his people Israel. So once again, the planting of the Lord, the tree of life, is represented in the race of the children of Israel. But keeping the law and rejoicing in Yahweh upon learning of their salvation, the children of Israel must also care for one another, grasping onto their own tree. So, Christ continues, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. From the Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 25, from a pious man who lived 300 years before the birth of Christ, 
where he shows his understanding of this precept. In three things I was beautified and stood up beautiful before both God and men. The unity of brethren, the love of neighbors, and a man and a wife that agree together. Ostensibly, Sirach was able to write that because it was also a precept found in the law in Leviticus chapter 19, where we read from verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. Christ was only repeating and reinforcing what the children of Israel had long ago been instructed under the Old Covenant. With this, we also see that one's neighbor is one of the children of thy people. So it is interesting that the next laws which are mentioned in Leviticus are related to fornication even in animal husbandry and agriculture where we read in the verse which follows, Ye shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment of mingled, mingled of linen and wool come upon thee. Christ continues to speak in relation to love for one's fellows. A greater love than this no one has, that one would lay down his life on behalf of his friends. The ultimate sacrifice is self-sacrifice for your own people. In a messianic prophecy, Found in Zechariah chapter 13, we read, But he shall say, I am no prophet. I am a husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Presenting our commentary on that passage here in August of 2016, we wrote the following. Christians, those bearing the gospel of Christ, should allegorically bear the marks of Christ, as Paul had told the Galatians, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So, legitimate prophets of God in the Christian era carry the gospel of Christ as their message. Yahshua Christ claimed to be the shepherd, the good shepherd, but during his earthly ministry, he never directly claimed to be a prophet, letting others do that for him. So he sets an example for those who would aspire to be true prophets, that they should be shepherds instead, caring for the flocks of God. Yahshua Christ, the good shepherd, bore the wounds in his hands when he was wounded in the house of his friends. Of course, it may be protested 
that the Edomite Jews were not his friends, and that is true. The devils could never be the friends of God. But Judea and Jerusalem were not rightfully the house of the Edomite Jews. Rather, the Edomite Jews were infiltrators into the house and the body of the people of God. Yahshua Christ distinguished between those who were opposed to him and his friends. For example, in Luke chapter 12, where it is written that in the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that killed the body, and after that have no more that they can do. So even during the time of his ministry, those who followed and obeyed Christ were considered his friends. In John chapter 11, Yahshua Christ had attested that he would lay down his life for his sheep, where we read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep which I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my father love me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my father. Here we must admit that Yahshua did not lay down his life on behalf of the hireling or the wolf, but only for the sheep. So he certainly did not die for all men, just as Cain was sent into the land of Nod, and there he found other people and got married and built a city. But those people he found were not of the race of Adam. In Matthew chapter 23 and in Luke chapter 11, Christ professed that he will ultimately avenge the blood of Abel where he said, as it is recorded in Luke, that for this reason also the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, or apostles, and some of them they shall kill and they shall persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the society should be required from this race, and from the blood of Abel, Unto the blood of Zacharias, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, 
I say to you, it shall be required from this race. As it is also revealed in John chapters 8 and 10, the adversaries whom Christ was addressing were actually of the race of Cain, Canaan, and Esau, and not of Israel. Cain having killed Abel, Christ shall be the avenger of the blood of Abel. But first, the descendants of Cain would also kill Christ. Abel having been a shepherd, perhaps it is fitting that Christ describes himself as the good shepherd. But of the sheep, those who keep the commandments of God can evidently enter into friendship with both God and Christ. You are my friends if, if you would do the things which I command you. In that same manner, Abraham did everything which God had asked of him, and he was called a friend of God. This we read in James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac up his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Of course, Abraham's works were the things which he had done, which Yahweh God had asked of him. Because he believed God, he did them. So believing Jesus is not a mere mental state. Rather, a belief in Christ necessitates a keeping of the word of Christ, or one does not really believe Christ at all. But Christ also knew from the beginning that his apostles would do what he asked of them, which becomes evident as we continue. But first he proclaims them to be friends for another reason. No longer do I call you a servant, because a servant does not know what his master does. But you I have proclaimed friends, because all things which I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The purpose of Christ, what things he would do, were stated in the books of the prophets and elucidated in the gospel of Christ. But whom did Yahshua ever call his servant? While often he used servants as subjects in his parables, there is no record in the Gospels that he ever directly referred to or called any of his apostles servants. So his words here must be a general reference to the children of Israel, who were often referred to as the servants of Yahweh in the words of the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 41, we read, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. 
Both Abraham and Jacob were called the servants of Yahweh in the book of Genesis. But, as it is recorded, only Abraham was called a friend. Then, in the next verse of that chapter of Isaiah, we see that Yahweh expressly chose David to be his servant. <clears throat> Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. This was after the Assyrian deportations of most of Israel and Judah. And Yahweh is reassuring Jacob that he is not cast away, as it is the purpose of Christ to gather those same children of Israel to himself. So we read of the purpose of Christ in Luke chapter 1. He has holpen, or helped, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Now Christ indicates that his apostles will indeed fulfill the task which he requires of them. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and I have ordained you, in order that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit would abide. That whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he would give to you. Once again, we see that where Christ said that whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he would give to you, the promise is tied directly to the statement that I have chosen you and I have ordained you in order that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit would abide. Ostensibly, they would have anything they ask only if they bear fruit and if their fruit abides. Therefore, it is a safe conclusion that Yahweh is not bound to give us whatever we desire, but only what we need in order to fulfill the mission in life for which we have been chosen and ordained by him. The apostles were blessed in that they were told explicitly and in person just what it was that Christ would expect of them. Since then, few others, if anyone at all, can honestly make such a claim. As a digression, perhaps it may be deduced that if we do not have what things we need, then we are on the wrong path and not doing what it is that God wants us to do. Prayer may alleviate that situation, but I have often said that our failure is God's way of steering us towards what he wants us to do. Bearing fruit in this manner is what that first branch, which is the first Adam, had failed to do when he fell from the grace of God. Once he fell, he could no longer fulfill the task he was given in Genesis chapter 2, where we read, And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Rather, we read in Genesis chapter 3, that therefore Yahweh God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. 
So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, by which he could only await his redemption in Christ. In the meantime, it was told of him that as a result of his sin, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns, or maybe spicks, and thistles, or maybe arabs, shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. But grasping the tree of life, the man must cling to his own race to love his neighbor, contrary to his sin with the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, Christ admonishes his disciples once again. These things I command you, in verse 17, that you love one another. When asked which of the commandments were greatest in the law, Christ responded, as it is found in Matthew chapter 22, Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Because when you love your people, you're doing the will of your God. You're pleasing your God because he loves your people. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. For this reason, we read in James chapter 2 that if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But as we have also often explained, where this commandment is first seen in the law in Leviticus chapter 19, <clears throat> the Hebrew word is translated, the Hebrew word which is translated as neighbor comes from a verb meaning to graze together. Or, in other words, to be of the same flock. So it is evident that a sheep cannot be forced to be the neighbor to a wolf, regardless of geographical proximity. So the same passage in Leviticus also describes one's neighbor as one of the children of thy people meaning that a neighbor can only be of one's own race and nation, a branch from one's own tree. Christ is telling his disciples to love one another, <clears throat> and that cannot ever nullify his profession that he came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, one another must be understood to be exclusive of all but those for whom he had come. You can never squeeze nigger into neighbor. 
Now Christ makes a profession that indicates that he certainly does not love everybody, as many false prophets like to claim. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I suddenly have a froggy voice. Verse 18 of John chapter 15. If society hates you, know that it hated me before you. If you were from of society, society would have loved its own. But because you are not from of society, but I have chosen you out of society, for this reason, society hates you. Of course, that word society is usually translated as world. But the Greek word cosmos more accurately refers to a society than it does to the entire planet, which is how the word world is generally used today. The world of the scriptures was the Greco-Roman society, as we see in Luke chapter 2 that it came to pass in those days, speaking of the time around the birth of Christ, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And of course, the Romans couldn't tax Chinamen. They weren't part of the Roman world. Likewise, Paul wrote in the opening chapter of his epistle to the Romans, that first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, again referring to the Greco-Roman world, as that was indeed the world of the apostles. In Genesis, Yahweh made a garden, and the Adamic man was expected to keep it. Outside of that garden was the land of Nod, or wandering which is also a metaphor for sin. When Adam fell from grace, his descendants eventually occupied a much larger portion of the planet, and the presumed people who had occupied Nod before him never went away. They are among us, and they dwell all around us to this very day. But they are not of the race of Adam, and never had a part in the promise of recovery in Genesis, that the man may one day put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. The whole society, being in the power of the evil one as the Apostle John professed in his first epistle. The Apostle James wrote, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, insisting that they are actually committing fornication by loving the world. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The society, or world, being engaged in idolatry, is sinful and antithetical to obedience to God. One cannot love the world and keep the commandments of God because the world and those who are in it hate God. Judeo. I hate to call them Christians. 
Judeo, wow. Like I just said, I hate to call them Christians. Judeo-Christians had this saying. I've heard my own Baptist cousin say this, that they're in the world, but not of the world. And then they run off and they watch football games all day on Sunday and basketball games all winter. And they go to the theaters and they partake in the movies. They have Netflix in their homes and cable TV with 186 channels that they watch every night during the week. How could you say you're not of the world when you're partaking in all of that idolatry? They're just lying to themselves because they go to church maybe once a week on Sunday for maybe an hour or two. So they think they're in the world, but they're not of the world. The other 166 hours a week, they're engaging in idolatry with the world. They're just kidding themselves. Christians must separate themselves from all of that. All of it. There is no watching a football game. There is no watching niggers run up and down a basketball court and, and partaking in that and lending credence to that. You're partaking in idolatry. There is no going and spending 20 or 30 bucks to see some Jew Hollywood production called a movie. There is no doing that. If you're separated from the world, you shouldn't be doing those things. You shouldn't be going to movies. You shouldn't be renting videotapes. You shouldn't even have television. <clears throat> I have a television, the machine, but I use it for the internet, for YouTube, when I want to use it with a group of people. I don't have television, the service. There's no cable TV here. I'm not being self-righteous, but if Christians are going to separate from the world, they have to drop all of those all of those entertainments which are basically idolatry. There are many more wonderful things to be entertained by. Go fishing. Here Yahshua is telling his disciples that he has chosen them, but his disciples have a mission to bear fruit in his gospel, which is the good message of redemption and salvation to the lost sheep of the children of Israel. This is a subject of a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 52. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, a reference to the Egyptian captivity, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause a reference to the Assyrian captivity, which had already happened by the time Isaiah wrote chapter 52, probably in the days of Hezekiah, after most of Judah was even taken away by the Assyrians. Now, therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, make them to howl, saith Yahweh, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. And this is going to happen 
in direct relation to the gospel, as we see in the next verse of the prophecy, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, thy God reigns. Good tidings is the meaning of the word gospel. The gospel being a subject of several prophecies in Isaiah and another in the prophet Nahum was prophesied for the children of Israel alone. Where Isaiah chapter 52 says, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. He is referring to two captivities, the captivity of Egypt, from which the people were delivered in the Exodus, and the captivity of most of Israel and Judah in Isaiah's own time, a captivity from which they never returned. But instead, during which time, they established many of the nations of Europe as Chimerians, Galatahi, and Scythians, Christ having come to fulfill the words of the prophets, as he himself exclaimed, his gospel cannot have any other purpose than that which is outlined in those words of those same prophets. So while the apostles were chosen to spread the gospel of Christ, they were also chosen to bear fruit among the nations of Israel as Israel did indeed become many nations in the period of their captivity and in their many earlier migrations. It was prophesied several times in Genesis that the children of Israel would become many nations, and they certainly did. Therefore, Paul was able to tell the Corinthians in chapter 10 of his first epistle to them that their fathers were with Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea, and say, as we have already cited, Behold, Israel after the flesh, Israel according to the flesh, the real Israel, are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar, and the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Paul was referring to the nations of the Greco-Roman world with which the Corinthians were familiar. In their captivities, the children of Israel had all taken to paganism, as the Old Testament also attests. Paul explained once again in Romans chapter 4, that those same nations were indeed the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that his seed would become many nations, and that to them was the promise certain. The gospel is the assurance of the fulfillment of that promise in which the children of Israel should rejoice. As we have also already read from Isaiah, from chapter 41, the children of Israel remained the chosen of God, even after they were taken into Assyrian captivity. 
But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. This is evident again in Isaiah chapter 44. Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh, that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, and thou, Jesu run, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. No other people has that promise. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. The water poured upon the dry ground is the water of life of the gospel promised to the children of Israel and described as the former rain in a messianic prophecy found in Joel chapter 2 where the Apostle James cited that passage from Joel in chapter 5 of his epistle. We see that is how the apostles were expected to bear fruit, where he wrote, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and the later rain. So we've had the early rain, and now we anticipate the latter rain. We've had the fruits. We are the fruits of the early rain, being Christians. Now, we perpetuate the gospel, and we wait for the later rain. The children of Israel were to be a separate people, called out of the ancient world from the beginning. We should still be out of the world, detached from the interests and objectives and idolatry and entertainments of the world. We have already read that from Exodus chapter 19, and it is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Ye are the children of Yahweh your God, for thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God. And Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 26, And Yahweh has avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he has promised thee that thou shouldest keep all his commandments and to make thee high above all nations which he has made, all of the Adamic nations, in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, as he has spoken. Then, in words attributed to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see the interpretation of these earlier passages. For thou did separate them from among all the people of the earth, to be thine inheritance, as thou spoke by the hand of Moses thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt. O oh, 
Yahweh God. This commandment still stands under the new covenant. To this day, the children of Israel, which are the nations of Christian Europe, wherever they are today, are commanded to be a separate people. So we read in the first epistle of Peter in chapter 2, but you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of Yahweh, those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. That last passage is a citation from Hosea chapter 1, which can also apply only to the children of Israel. As in the eyes of God, they became not a people when they were carried away captive by the Assyrians, but they were granted mercy in Christ. Being reconciled to him. Paul of Tarsus had frequently described his ministry as the ministry of that reconciliation, and that is why. This is also found in Jeremiah chapter 30, written perhaps 150 years later than Hosea. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel when I went to cause him to rest. Not only Peter, but Paul of Tarsus also keeps the same commandment. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he admonished them by saying, Neither should we commit fornication, just as some of them had committed fornication, and in one day 23,000 had fallen. Doing that, Paul was citing a race-mixing event where the Israelites had sinned by taking women of the daughters of Moab, and they were punished for it. They were punished rather severely. Then, in his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? The other people, the other races, are all the children of strange gods. And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh. Just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated, says the prince, or the Lord. And do not be joined to the impure or the unclean. And I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the Almighty Prince. The impure or unclean are not Israelites, as only the children of Israel were cleansed by the blood of Christ, as it was also promised in the prophets. This promise is found in Jeremiah chapter 33. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return 
and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Nobody else has that promise. Even though sin is not imputed, they are not the subject of any of the promises. Perhaps other Adamic nations are, but the other races certainly are not. Perhaps we have digressed somewhat from our purpose here this evening, which is to elucidate the synthesis between Genesis and the purpose of Christ through our commentary on John chapter 15. But the wider Adamic race was long ago permitted to go off into sin and idolatry by God, as Paul explained, while the other races have no part in any of the word of God, no part at all, amongst those of the race of Adam, only Abraham and his seed through Jacob were called out of the resulting world of idolatry to be the peculiar people of God. That condition persists in the new covenant as well as it did in the old. And therefore, they alone are the called, the chosen, among whom the apostles of Christ were expected to bear fruit. With that in mind, and speaking once again of that joy which Christ had expected his apostles to have, we read in Isaiah chapter 51, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and unto the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. If one is not a child of Jacob, one has no way to look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah to bear you. And therefore, one was never called or chosen by God. Now referring to his friends as his servants, Christ makes an analogy of the inevitable fate of those who are called out of the world. Remember the word which I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they shall also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they shall also keep yours. Christ is speaking of his enemies, knowing that they would both kill him and persecute his disciples after his departure. As we quoted from Zechariah, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. The Edomite Jews, who were in political control of Judea at the time, were never candidates for conversion. 
or God could have converted them rather than permitting them to persecute his disciples. Rather, Christ had told them that ye believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. He had told them that they were not his people only a short time before, as I said unto you. Where it is recorded in John chapter 8 that they are the children of Cain, who was a devil and a murderer from the beginning, and indirectly that they were bastards for that reason. They were not true children of Abraham. So where he says, a servant is not greater than his master, if Yahshua himself would not convert the Jews, then no servant of Christ should ever attempt to convert a Jew. Those who did convert to the Roman church in the Middle Ages and later had ultimately only corrupted it, and it is corrupt to this very day for that reason. If they have kept my word, they shall also keep yours. Yahweh had promised in Jeremiah chapter 31 that his law would be written on the hearts of the children of Israel with whom he would make a new covenant, and that is the covenant in Christ. But as Paul had explained in Galatians chapter 3, speaking to Galatians, who were some of the descendants of the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Ostensibly, many Israelites of the captivities, although they were pagans, still maintained many aspects of the law through the cultural acclamation which their ancestors had developed over centuries in ancient Israel. For that reason, Paul commended the Romans for having kept the law written on their hearts. Keeping that law, that's in Romans chapter 2, keeping that law, they would not have become mixed with the aliens, but kept to themselves, and therefore they would be able to hear the word of God, having the spirit of God and being able to accept the spirit of truth, as Paul had explained it in Romans chapter 8. Of those who accept the spirit of God and keep his commandments, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, for as many are, For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, or the spirit of the position of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. While the world is full of deception, if one can accept the spirit of truth, that may well be a good indication that one is of the truth. Christ continues in verse 21 of John chapter 15. 
But all these things they shall do to you on account of my name, because they do not know he who has sent me. In Malachi chapter 1, in a prophecy where the people of Judea in the second, second temple period were being chastised for defiling the name of their God, we read, for from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith Yahweh of hosts. Prophecies such as this further prove the veracity of the scriptures, as this became true in spite of the fact that the whole world was pagan at the time, including most of the scattered Israelites, and in spite of the fact that his enemies had done their best to absolutely suppress his name. They hate his name to this day. But long before Malachi, the children of Israel in captivity were prophesied to learn the name of their God, even in their captivity, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 16. O Yahweh, my strength and my fortress, and my refuge in the day of affliction, the nations shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth, and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, these nations being children of Israel who were prophesied to go to the ends of the earth. Our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. This same thing is expressed in Isaiah in another passage, which we have already cited this evening, in chapter 2, where it says in part, For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. When they heard the gospel of Christ, they did indeed realize it was that God of the Old Testament who was speaking through him. The only way that could be possible is if the gospel of Christ was successful and the end of the gospel that the European world became Christian is the most profound proof of the truth of God. But the enemies of Christ to this very day endeavor to distort his message and distinguish, I'm sorry, and extinguish his name. So if we do anything in his name, if we attempt even today if we attempt to teach the true gospel of the scriptures, apostolic Christianity, we are still persecuted. It is still ongoing. 
In Isaiah chapter 29, we see another example of the prophecies that the children of Israel would sanctify the name of Yahweh in the places where they were scattered. And we read, Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. This would also have failed, but for the success of the gospel of Christ in spite of his enemies. Now he speaks concerning those who were opposed to him. <clears throat> if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no error error or sin. But now they have no excuse concerning their errors. Every Israelite being under the law has sinned, or as we translate the term, has committed error. So Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then in Romans chapter 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Then he adds, For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. The law was only given to the children of Israel. As Paul explained in Romans chapter 7, that I had not known sin, but by the law. That is the law which had made him conscious of sin. Here, Yahshua Christ, speaking of those who were opposed to him, states that if he had not spoken to them, they would have no sin. And he is speaking in regard to how they would treat both him and his disciples. So in that manner, whether they were of Israel or not, being Judeans, they were responsible for their actions and would be judged on account of their deeds. <clears throat> so we see that Yahweh has a just cause to destroy his enemies. He is not merely a racist for hating the progeny of Esau. He also hates them for their behavior, even if their behavior is a natural part of their intrinsic character. So in John chapter 16, he warns the apostles, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yeah, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me, meaning that they weren't really his sheep. Likewise, he warns them here. He hating me also hates the Father. If I had not done among them, works which no one else has done, they would have no error throughout the Gospel of John. Throughout his ministry, he appealed to his works as the proof of what was said about him, that he was telling them the truth, and of what he had told them, that he was telling them the truth. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. 
because Christ always attributed his works to God. But in order that the word would be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they have hated me for naught. Perhaps the end of verse 25 may have been translated, they have hated me gratuitously. <clears throat> the passage is from Psalm 35, a Psalm of David where he prayed against his own enemies and said, Lord, Adane, Lord, how long will thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. I will give thee thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee much among the people. Let not them that are mine enemies wrongfully rejoice over me. Neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. A similar passage is found in another Psalm of David. <clears throat> Excuse me. Psalm 69, where he lamented that they did hate me without a cause. I'm more than the hairs of mine head. Here, Yahshua called the law their law, except that one ancient papyrus, the 3rd century P66, has only the law. Another papyrus, just as old, P22, verifies the reading of their law, which is found in the later Uncial manuscripts and in the majority text. Whether they are of Esau or of Israel, as the Judeans were of either or both races, they circumcised themselves and took the law upon themselves, professing to be Judeans, and therefore the law was their law, and Christ had proven many times that they could not keep it, where he says later in chapter 16 that those who hate him and would persecute his disciples have not known the Father nor me. He proves that they were not truly of Israel. As he also said to them in John chapter 10, that ye believe not because you are not of my sheep. Continuing with verse 26, now he turns once again to comforting them. When the advocate should come, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth which goes out from the Father, that shall testify concerning me. That advocate, that Spirit of truth. Christ had already informed his disciples in John chapter 14 that the advocate or comforter, as the King James Version has the word, is the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of truth. So they are all one and the same. Then, in connection with that first promise of such an advocate, he professed that it would be he himself that would come to them. But he also gave varying statements as to how the Comforter would be sent to them. In John chapter 14, according to the King James Version, Christ had said that, I will pray the Father, and he shall give give you another comforter. And I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. But here he says, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father. And then in chapter 16, he says, 
For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. All of these statements can only be true if Yahweh God the Father, Yahshua Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the Comforter, are all different manifestations of one and the same God. But they are not a trinity. As Christ had also said that I and my Father are one and not three. So therefore, they must be a unity, not a trinity. Furthermore, there are other manifestations. As Paul had said that the rock in the desert was Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Old Testament also describes other manifestations of God, such as the burning in a bush or the fire on the mountain. Paul described the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which began on the first Christian Pentecost described in Acts chapter 2, as a deposit of the Spirit which all of the children of Israel would one day receive. That Spirit of Truth ultimately guided the apostles through the Scriptures to help them arrive at the truth, which we have discussed here in relation to the book of Acts and the learning experience which the apostles had in the years after the ascension of Christ. But the Holy Spirit also drove the spread and acceptance of the gospel in the formative years of Christianity as it was persecuted and prevailed over its persecutors. This is also evident in the book of Acts and especially in the ministry of Paul of Tarsus, who was a signal example of a man ordained to spread the gospel and guided in that endeavor by the Spirit of God. But in addition to the Holy Spirit, the spread of the gospel was facilitated by those who were witnesses to the ministry of Christ from the beginning. So now he tells his disciples, but you also shall testify because you are with me from the beginning. Here is the task for which they were chosen and ordained, as he had told them in verse 16, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Earlier, in chapter 6 of this gospel, Christ asked them, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? John had added the understanding that he was speaking of Judas Iscariot when he referred to one of them as a devil. Now, here, we know that Judas is not present here in this discourse in John chapter 15, as he had already gone off to betray him. So while Judas was with Christ throughout his ministry, he never received this commission from Christ, as he was chosen for a very different reason, being a devil. Judas certainly acted in the pattern first observed in Cain, as he had loved gain more than loving his own supposed brother. The very name Cain is related to a word which can mean to get or to acquire. And it is evident that Judas was one of his descendants. With all of this, perhaps it becomes evident that men cannot choose God, but it is God who chooses men, and not always for their good. 
There is a perfect synthesis between Genesis and the Gospel of Christ. And accepting some errors which had been introduced by men, the concepts and phenomenon described in them both are entirely consistent and manifest from one to the other. This concludes our commentary on John chapter 15. I will return with John perhaps in three weeks as we will be traveling next week into the week following, perhaps in two weeks if we get home early enough. I had really hoped when I endeavored to begin this commentary back when even Clifton Emmeheiser was still with us in the spring of 2018 that I would be finished with it by now. I never imagined that it would be 38 presentations or chapters, as I will call them, because I hope one day to have them in a book. I never imagined that it would be 38 parts to finish the first 15 chapters. And there are still seven more to go, I believe. I think it's seven. Seven more to go. So we might be at this for a while yet, but I won't rush it. I'm sorry. Yes, seven more to go, six more to go. I'm sorry. I'm thinking there's a John chapter 22, and there certainly isn't. So we'll be here probably into next spring. I pray, Yahweh God be willing, that we will complete it. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel, and Israel alone, the eternal enemy of every Jew. And good night.